ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. Of all the shows we've ever done at It's Rainmaking Time, perhaps you should be listening to this as one of the most important shows you're ever going to hear if you live in the state of California. And if you live in other states in the United States, what you're going to hear today is real. It's a story about an international attorney who stood up to the legal system in California for bribery and corruption, who asked a judge who was responsible for taking bribes to recuse himself and found himself in 18 months of solitary confinement and his bar license being revoked indefinitely. This is so serious because if this is actually going on and this has gone on, our legal system is ruined and may not be recoverable. Our guest is Richard Fine, who not only stood up to the system, but he has been the counsel to the Kingdom of Norway as Honorary Counsel General. He has been with the U.S. Department of Justice in the Antitrust Division and an attorney in Washington, D.C. He indicted and prosecuted GM and Ford for price fixing. He investigated the pulp paper newsprint industry for its international price fixing cartel. He investigated international mergers, represented also the Department of Justice in its first appearance before the Tariff Commission, now the International Trade Commission. He has been well received in London, trained at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He has been a principal in his own law firm for 40 years, specializing in antitrust, international and comparative law, class actions, diplomatic sovereign immunity, terrorism in government, and judicial abuse of power. He forced the California government to return $1 billion of illegally used funds to taxpayers. He exposed and prosecuted $350 million of illegal payments to California judges and he litigated IAM versus OPEC et al., the case against OPEC for affecting U.S. gas prices. He's advised governments and international entities. I also want you to know that Full Disclosure, a production company and a show out of Marina Del Rey and Leslie Dutton, I want to honor her as well for her bravery in covering the corruption and the bribery and the illegal activity of our judges in the state of California for going to town and making it an issue and for looking after Richard and interfacing with him while he was in coercive, solitary confinement for 18 months. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome the bravest man in the legal field, Richard Fine. Welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. Kim, thank you very much. I get tired even hearing uh, the things that I did. I also want to welcome our participants on the Starship Bridge to its rainmaking time and to tell you that we honor you and we appreciate you being here. We appreciate you for caring enough to pay and come on the bridge and to contribute to the show and have a deeper inquiry into this subject matter. Richard, I'd like you to share how this began, what happened to you, and how it is that judges were able to put you in solitary confinement for 18 months, break the law, and revoke your bar license. The whole thing actually started back in around 1999. A county union that retained me to get involved in a case against the county with respect to environmental fees I came in to try the case. The case had been going since approximately 1995 or 1996. I found out that the county had been taking the environmental fees, which are set by the state. These fees were supposed to go for environmental purposes. The county was taking this money and putting it into their general fund. Well, we tried the case, and uh, we won. We're talking about $45 million a year. We got a judgment. The county had $11 million left at that point in time. We took that $11 million, we set it up into a special fund, and for every year thereafter, all the money went into the special fund, which at this point in time is approximately $450 million. And we froze the fees in that fund so that they couldn't charge any more fees until that $11 million was used up. The result is that fees to restaurants and for swimming pools and all these other inspections were frozen keeping prices low for people that were going to restaurants in L.A. County. When it came time to get my attorney's fees, the judge refused to award the attorney's fees, 
saying that county unions couldn't sue the county and claiming that this was political. And I thought this was very, very strange. But at that point, I didn't know that the county was paying the judges money above and beyond their state compensation. And this was against the California Constitution and also was a bribe because the county was a party appearing in front of the judge. The next day, case that came down, at the same point in time, I was approached by John Silva. And John Silva had gotten a divorce from his wife, but they were still pretty friendly. His wife, unfortunately, had gone on welfare for approximately two or three weeks. And therefore, the county was collecting all of her payments. John was making child support payments into the county, but the problem was the county wasn't giving the payments over to the wife. Well, we investigated that, and we found out that the county was withholding the child support payments that were supposed to be going to the women and children, and they were withholding about $14 million worth of these payments. How did you find out the full amount? I asked the county interrogatories, which are formal questions that you can do in litigation. And I said, how many accounts do you have that you haven't paid out this money or returned it to the donors within six months? Because there's a law that says the county either has to pay out the money or they have to return it within a six-month period of time. They only have six months that they can hold that money. And the county answered, and they said, we have $14 million. So the county admitted to doing this. Well, when we went to trial, on the witness stand, the county admitted that they did this again. And then the county moved to have the case dismissed. And the judge dismissed the case, even though the county admitted that they had done this wrong thing. And I said, this is really strange. So when we got into the appeal of that case, this was in the year 2000 or so, I found out the county had been making these payments to the judges. And the way that I found out is that Chief Justice George had addressed a meeting of the California Judges Association. And in that meeting, he had made a comment that the L.A. Superior Court judges should be paying for everyone's lunch because they were getting so much money from the county. And he also made a comment that he thought that these payments were unconstitutional. That's how I found out. I then went in my brief, and I claimed that the payments were illegal, that they were concealed, and the Court of Appeals refused to do anything about it. I went into the California Supreme Court. They refused to do anything about it. And in 2002, I sued L.A. County based upon these payments. And the court ended up throwing out the lawsuit, and I sued in the name of John Silva. And they claimed that Silva didn't have standing to sue. Well, that was a wrong decision. He did, because at that point in time, he still had his divorce case going in front of the California Superior Court. So they really stuck it to us. But that case was sitting there, and uh, I had previously sued the judge in the county case. We called it the Lakeos case for having taken money illegally. And I claimed that the money was illegal because Article 6, Section 19 of the California Constitution said only the state legislature can set the compensation of the judges. So I had those two lawsuits going, and they dismissed both of them. That's when everything began. Ladies and gentlemen, for the next 10 minutes, Richard is going to bring you deeper into the hornet's nest and the relationships between the county, the judicial system, supervisors, and he's going to name names. Then we're going to get into what happened to him, how he was put in solitary confinement, and how he lost his bar license and more having to do with judicial elections and their transparency or their lack of. Don't go away. Later, I brought the same argument up in a case called the Coalition to Save the Marina and the Marina Tenants Association versus the County of Los Angeles. In that particular case, the County of Los Angeles owns Marina del Rey. They've leased out the land and part of the water in the marina to various individual entrepreneurs or developers who then developed apartment buildings. These apartment buildings take in an income of approximately $350 million a year. They're built on county land. The county only gets $35 million a year. The county should be getting approximately $100 million a year. And this is a gift of public funds to private individuals, which is a violation of the California Constitution. I sued the county and the various developers. And that case got dismissed. However, before that case got dismissed, I claimed that the judge, Susanne G. Bruguera, was receiving money from the county. And therefore, she couldn't sit on the case. And that went up through the California Court of Appeals. 
and everything. They did nothing about it. In 2008, the case came down, a case called Sturgeon versus the County of Los Angeles. And that case held that the payments that the county made to these judges violated Article 6, Section 19 of the California Constitution. The Sturgeon Group, it was brought by Judicial Watch, used basically the same complaint that I used back in 2002. By 2008, everything that I had talked about now came to fruition and the county payments were illegal. During the same period in time, starting in 2005, I brought another case in Marina del Rey against the Epsteins with respect to one of their particular groups with respect to the redevelopment of some leases. Fighting me in that particular case was Sheldon Sloan, who was on the Board of Governors of the State Bar. In 2003, the State Bar went against me for various things because one of the judges came to the State Bar and complained. Can you say what the various things are? Basically filing complaints against judges and filing pleadings in the courts. Everything the State Bar ever did against me was for filing pleadings in the courts, which are protected by the First Amendment. Right before trial, I moved to have their case dismissed, and that was in February of 2004. The State Bar dismissed the case. So that case went away. In September of 2004, and I didn't know this at this particular point in time, Commissioner Mitchell, with whom I had had a lot of problems because I showed that he was doing a lot of wrong things, secretly went to the State Bar and filed a complaint against me. In 2006, within two years after the dismissal of the previous complaint, the State Bar filed another complaint against me, charging me with moral turpitude for filing pleadings, only filing pleadings in courts. We come into a timeline here. In 2007, I filed a complaint against the County of Los Angeles and the Jerry Epstein Group for the redevelopment of an apartment building in Marina del Rey. The Epsteins had made political contributions to Mike Antonovich and to Kanabi, two supervisors. And they made these contributions in April of 2007. How did you find that out? by going into the county's campaign donations, because campaign donations have to be listed. Okay. Now, I found this out after we filed the suit. May fifteenth, two 2007, the county approved an EIR by the Epstein Group. However, under the law, and a case called Breakstone versus the City of Torrance, says a supervisor who has received a campaign contribution within a year of the time of a vote cannot vote in favor of the person that gave the contribution, nor can they uh, speak on that. So Kanabi and Antonovich were precluded from voting on this EIR. What's an EIR? An EIR is an environmental impact report. Okay. They voted on it anyway. So the vote was illegal because there were five L.A. supervisors. Four of them voted on it. Two of the four were Kanabi and Antonovich. The vote was illegal. The county of Los Angeles covered up the fact that the vote was illegal and approved the EIR. We filed a lawsuit on behalf of the Marina Strand Colony 2 Homeowners Association, and the defendant in the lawsuit was the county of Los Angeles, and the real party in interest was the Epstein Group. This suit went on, and because it was an EIR, the county had to produce the record within 60 days. The county didn't produce the record within 60 days. I had to ask for a trial within 90 days. I was one day late in asking for the trial. I then said, under excusable neglect, actually what happened, I had miscounted the days because you had 31 days in July, and I was one day off. And under the doctrine of excusable neglect, even if a case gets dismissed for being one day off, it gets reinstated again with no harm and no obligation for me to pay any attorney's fees. The county and the Epstein group moved to have the case dismissed. I came back and said it can be reinstated under excusable neglect. And I also moved to win the case because the county was 60 days late in producing the record on the EIR, which it didn't produce until about 90 days later. During the time that these motions were taking place, 
the state bar's trial judge or hearing department judge, Richard Hahn, came out with a decision recommending my disbarment. Now, Richard Hahn was a problem in and of himself because he was sitting as a member of the Board of Governors of the Southern California Special Olympics. The county had donated $30,000 to the Southern California Special Olympics. So therefore, he should have recused himself, and he didn't. And I moved to have him recuse and have his decision voided out, and the state bar did nothing about that. And the judges on the state bar who did nothing about it also were connected to the county because of the fact that they were sitting on various organizations where you had members of the county sitting on those organizations. Because at this particular point in time, sitting on the state bar, the president of the state bar was Sheldon Sloan, who was an attorney fighting against me in another case that I had against Epstein. And the president-elect of the state bar was Jeffrey Bleich, a lawyer for Munger Tolls, who was representing the county in this particular case. I was representing the county and drafting the lease with the Epstein group in the particular case that I was involved in. And in addition to that, Laura Chick was a public member of the state bar, sitting as a member of the city council in one of the cases that was involved in the state bar claim against me, where I had claimed that the L.A. city council had done wrong things, and they were going against me for that. At what point did you ever consider that they're all going to band together and take you down? The first time that they tried that, you know, they dropped out of the case. Now, remember, I didn't know about the judges coming against me until we were in trial in 2007 in the state bar case. We were in the trial, and Bruce Mitchell walked into the trial, and Judge Hahn said, who are you? And he said, my name is Bruce Mitchell, I'm a commissioner, and I am the complaining party in this case. Now, I had previously received a letter from the state bar saying that there was a complaining party in September 2006, and they wouldn't tell me who it was. The state bar had lied during the state bar case, and they said that they had initiated the investigation. They didn't disclose that it was anyone else. And it's only when I got this letter that I realized that somebody else had initiated the investigation and the state bar was lying. And then when Mitchell showed up at the trial, then he admitted that he was the person. So that's when I knew that the judges were coming at me again. And then I asked to put Mitchell on the stand, and they immediately they took a break. They got him out of the courtroom, and he disappeared. In October 2007, Judge Hahn held me to be an inactive member of the state bar. And being an inactive member of the state bar, I could no longer represent the Marine Strand Colony group in this particular case. So I was out of the case, and I was replaced by another lawyer, and I heard nothing about the case. In January 2008, I get a copy of an order from Judge Yaffe saying that Marina Strand Colony 2 is in the case. He decides against the motion for Marine's John Colony 2 to win based upon the violation of the county and not producing the record. And he says that I have to pay attorney's fees of the county and the Epstein group. Well, that was clearly wrong. Are you telling me that this Judge Yaffe was telling you you had to pay attorney's fees in a case that you weren't the attorney on anymore? That's right. Not only was I not the attorney in the case anymore, but in addition to that, there was no notice to me of this particular hearing where he's making this decision, and that's unconstitutional. So I moved to get rid of this order. I said, Judge, you can't do this because it's unconstitutional. But in addition to that, neither you nor anyone else in the Los Angeles Superior Court can make this decision because of the fact all of you are taking money from L.A. County. That's where it started with respect to this particular case. I made these motions, and there's a hearing that was set for March 20th. L.A. County came in and said they aren't asking for attorney's fees, but the Epstein Group was asking for $40,000 in attorney's fees. I then did what we call a motion to tax, asking the Epstein Group to come up with whatever records they had, and also said that they couldn't do this. And both of those motions, and that motion was set for April. Judge Yaffe comes out claiming that he's making an order that I don't have a right to challenge him. We get to the March 20th hearing, and I get Judge Yaffe to admit on the record in March that he is getting money 
from L.A. County. I then, on March 25th, move to disqualify Judge Yaffe because he's admitted that he's taken money from L.A. County under the law. Judge Yaffe has 10 days in which to respond to that disqualification. He doesn't respond. If he doesn't respond within 10 days, he's out. Judge Yaffe refuses to go out, totally illegally. On April 15th, he signs a judgment against me for $40,000. The Epstein Group tries to enforce that judgment by going in and asking for my financial records and asking me to appear in front of a magistrate judge to answer questions about my finances to enforce that illegal judgment. What's the distinction between a regular judge and a magistrate judge? A magistrate judge is not a judge, but he's someone where you go to appear to have them ask questions about a judgment. I go in and I object to the magistrate judge. I say, you can't do this and I'm not signing any consent form for you to be able to do this. And furthermore, you don't have jurisdiction because of the fact that the judgment is no good. And so that comes back because he says he can't really hear anything. Yaffe isn't sitting at that particular point in time. Another judge comes in to decide these issues. I think it was Judge Kuehl. She says that she can't decide anything that Yaffe did because one judge can't decide what another judge has done. Is that Sheila Kuehl? Sheila Kuehl, yes. Okay. She was a supervising judge at the time. The Epstein Group then comes in and does an order to show cause for contempt of court against me. And they file 22 charges of contempt of court. And Yaffe decides that he's going to sit as the judge in contempt of court. I then say, Yaffe, you can't do that because not only have you admitted to receiving illegal payments and a judge can't judge his own actions under a United States Supreme Court case called In re Murchison. In addition to that, you've received these payments and I go against all the charges. At this point in time, in 2008, the Sturgeon case comes down and holds that the payments are illegal. So we now have Yaffe having received illegal payments. The contempt hearing starts on December 22nd, December 23rd, 2008. The first witness on the stand is Yaffe. So Yaffe is now acting as the judge and the witness. It's wild. Which is now totally illegal. <laughs> He's now the judge judging his own actions <laughs> of having taken money. And I put him on the stand, and once again, I get him to admit everything. He's taken illegal money. He's not used it for his campaign. The whole thing right on down the line. Is that in the court documents? Oh, yes. Do you have the court transcript of him admitting that? Yeah, actually, I think, I don't know where I have it. I know Leslie Dutton has it, and I think it's on the full disclosure uh, network. Okay. So the whole thing is there, and it's just beautiful. I mean, he's just admitted everything. We go through all of these things, and then I start showing the contributions of the Epstein Group into uh, Antonovich and Kanabi. You know, I show all the links and everything else. And by the time I get finished, I've basically destroyed these people. Well, we get to March 9th, 2009, where... Yaffe comes in and he announces his ruling. Now, at this point in time, I have Yaffe violating the bribery statute, the intangible right to honest services, which is the federal statute. You know, I have him violating everything. And Yaffe comes down and he knocks out every charge with the exception of not responding to the questions. And then he claims, I'm practicing law without a license. However, at that point in time, the California Supreme Court decision against me had not become final. So that charge really becomes false. So the only thing that he has is really not responding to the questions. And he sentences me into solitary courts of confinement. Now, even that particular decision becomes questionable because when Yaffe lets me out, September 17th, Yaffe's order says the sheriff is ordered to discontinue the incarceration of fine for the purpose of coercing him to answer questions put to him in a judgment debtor's examination. As of the date of this order, fine is to commence serving the five-day criminal sentence that he was ordered to serve for contempt of court. Yaffe has ended up saying that he sentenced me to two things on March 9th, contempt of court and course of confinement. Well, you can't do that, because if he sentenced me to contempt of court, the most that I could serve was five days. If he sentenced me to the course of confinement under the penal code, the most that I could have served would be a year or five days. So Yaffe didn't even know what he sentenced me to. 
based upon his later decision of September 17th. And I was incarcerated illegally because the contempt of court statute says that if you're guilty of contempt of court, the most you can serve is five days. And a penal code statute says if you're sentenced under contempt of court, the most that you can serve is a year. Well, let me ask you something. Can't anybody at any time who disagrees with what's going on be considered in contempt of the court? I mean, how broad is it? Well, you have to have a hearing. You have to have an order to show cause, and then you actually have to have a hearing. Did you? I had the hearing with Yaffe. Then what I did is I took all this up on writs of habeas corpus, and it went all the way up into the Ninth Circuit, into the United States Supreme Court. Now, naturally, the state courts just dismissed my writs. I went into the federal court. The respondent or the defendant in the federal court is the sheriff. The sheriff ended up not contesting my writ. The judge illegally ordered the superior court to respond, which he cannot do. There's a whole timing thing where they broke every law in the district court. Both superior court and Judge Yaffe came in, and they ended up filing a response. The district court violated the laws with respect to that because there was supposed to be a hearing and everything, which there never was. Ultimately, it turned out that Judge Yaffe had lied in July, I think it was around July 13th, 2010. Judge Yaffe admits that he lied when he said he made an order on March 18th, 2008, saying that I couldn't challenge him. And he admits that he never made that order. Now, that should have thrown everything out altogether. And at that point in time, I went in and I said, okay, you've lied. Yaffe then announces his retirement right after I call him on that lie and his admission of that lie. And he retires and resigns in September, and that's when he sets me free. But basically, I call that to the attention of the Ninth Circuit and to the United States Supreme Court. They do nothing about it. In addition to that, the Ninth Circuit does not do anything about the court holdings that a judge can't decide his own case, his own actions, and they do nothing about the case laws that say that when a judge receives money such as this, that it's a denial of due process. In fact, they don't even cite the correct cases. When I was in jail, I was let out on September 17, 2010, which is the night before the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, or Kal Nidre evening. The day before that, I was visited by three Hasidic rabbis, and they told me they were going to contact Yaffe. Now, I don't know if they did or if they didn't. On that day, Yaffe had come out with an order saying that he was never going to let me out of jail. The next day, he changes his mind. And he claims that my conduct is irrational, that I could always have gotten out of jail by just answering the questions or paying the $50,000, and that it is clear that I am not going to do that, that I'm claiming that I've exposed the judges receiving their money, and he considers this conduct to be bizarre, and therefore to keep me in jail any longer is not going to perform any useful purpose. So therefore, he's decided, and this is a quote, Fine's continued incarceration is a detriment to the public because Fine is using up jail space in an overcrowded jail <laughs> and may cause the release of persons who constitute a greater threat to the public than Fine does. By keeping him incarcerated for 18 months, the court has deterred others from defying its orders to the extent that it is possible to do so given the facts of this case. So Yaffe changes his mind and lets me out basically admitting that what he's really done is he's really gone in there and incarcerated me to stop people from challenging these judges for taking this money. That was the underlying thing here. But the interesting thing is the visit from the rabbis, whether they contacted Yaffe or not, I don't know. But I firmly believe that on that evening, somebody contacted <laughs> Yaffe, and it could have been a higher power. And yes. all of a sudden, Yaffe ends up with a change of heart. The day before, I'm in there forever. The next day, my incarceration is serving no useful purpose, and he serves his purpose by scaring the hell out of every lawyer who's going to think of going after the judges for getting the illegal payments. Okay, let's hear from the Starship Bridge. William, would you like to go first and either say something or ask Richard a question? Yes, uh, Mr. Fine, I'm well aware of the fact that United States citizens are fooled into thinking that there's some justice 
in the justice system, but I, through my own experience, found that usually it's the old golden rule, whoever has the money and the power, they rule, and they basically get done what they want. But I found what you said was fascinating, because I'm very interested in what's going on with the uh, state recreation parks in California, finding the -the off-the-book funds. As you know, Kim did a show on the comprehensive annual financial report with Mr. Burian, and there's websites like www.cafrman.com, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Gerald Klatt, who spelled it out. The bottom line that I'm asking is, where did these funds come from, and how are they listed? I'm sure in the They're not from the regular budget of the county. They wouldn't say, oh, this is the pay the judges budget. My guess is they're coming probably from this off-the-books comprehensive annual financial report budget, the investment funds that have been established since 1940s. Actually, the, the money that the county used came from the county's general fund, which is the property tax fund. And the way that I found it is if you go into the L.A. County budget, or for that matter, I think it's any of the 20 counties that are paying money directly or go into the counties that are paying money into the courts, which then go to the judges, you'll find a page which will say trial court funding. Like if you do it in L.A. County, you just go into their county budget and you'll find a special page which is called trial court funding. And in that page of trial court funding in L.A. County, you'll find a footnote which says that they're paying the money to the judges. So this money in L.A. County came straight out of uh, the property taxes in the county's general fund. And that would be the listed taxable funding that they list on the annual budget? Yes, it's in the annual budget. Back in 1988, the county sent a letter to the court, the L.A. Superior Court, in which they explained the rationale for these payments. And they said that they were making these payments to attract and retain qualified people to sit as judges in L.A. County. In this letter, they acknowledged that under Article 6, Section 19 of the California Constitution, they couldn't make the payments because only the state legislature can set the compensation of the judges. And also, they knew that you can't attract a person to sit as a judge because judges are elected under the California Constitution. So you can't retain the person to be a judge because the judge has to run for re-election. Now, there's one other way that a person can become a judge, and that is if a judge retires or resigns midterm, the governor appoints another person to fill that term until the election time. So let's say with Yaffe's uh, resignation in September of 2010, Governor Schwarzenegger has the ability to appoint another person to fill Yaffe's term. And that person would fill the term until Yaffe would have come up for re-election again. And then that person had to run for re-election. So the concept that you're paying this money to a judge to attract a person to become a judge doesn't work because they've got to run for an initial election or a re-election. The concept that you're paying the money to retain the judge is not going to work because the judge has to run for a re-election. So that whole concept is just nothing but BS. So what is the money really getting you? What the money was really getting the L.A. County supervisors, it was getting them a winning streak in cases. Because when you look at the L.A. County Council's litigation reports, which became public starting in 2005, you found from 2005 through 2010, now through 2011, there were only three cases that were won by people who sued L.A. County when an L.A. Superior Court judge made the decision. They bought the judges. That's the bottom line of it. That basically becomes bribery. Is there anybody else right now who'd like to make a comment or ask a question? Let's hear from the Starship Bridge. Yes, hello, Mr. Fine. This is Joshua. Who are the puppet masters behind the judges? Who keeps this house of cards afloat? Essentially, you have the money going to the judges. In return for that, the judges make the decisions in favor of the counties. And as far as L.A. County, we know that we definitely have the proof of that based upon the documents that I just explained, which are the L.A. County Council's litigation reports, which are online. And you can actually go to the L.A. County Council's website, go to the litigation reports, and you'll be able to read it for yourself. It's basically a bribery scheme. And you actually have cases that hold that under the California bribery statute, the statute is so wide that when somebody does something to influence a decision of a judge, it's considered to be bribery. And that's 
believe it's Section 7, Paragraph 6, Sections 92 and 93. Federal cases that hold that are U.S. versus Frega, U.S. versus Malchus, and U.S. versus Adams, and the federal statute is 18 U.S.C. Section 1346, the intangible right to honest services. So when you have a basic bribery scheme, someone pays the guy money, and the person responds by deciding in their favor. Now, the second part of this is that when you try and get rid of the judge, is the judge will either strike your disqualification, at which point you have to file a writ within 10 days. And if you file that writ and it goes up into the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals will summarily deny the writ without reason. You go to the California Supreme Court and they'll summarily deny your petition for review. And what you find there is that most of the people, over 90-some-odd percent of the judges in the Court of Appeal, are former Superior Court judges who have received this illegal money. And when you're looking at the California Supreme Court as it's presently composed, four out of the seven people in the California Supreme Court have received illegal money from either counties or courts. And the fifth one, Justice Baxter, was on the Judicial Council that wrote SBX 211. So you're not going to get any relief in any of these state court systems. And if you go into the federal court system, you're going to find that the judges are going to align with their state brethren and not give you any relief there either. So that gives you the structure. Joshua, did you get your question answered? Yes, I did. Thank you very much. Do you have anything else you want to say? So basically it's a cartel, Mr. Fine, is what you're trying to say. I'll call it a concert of action because in a cartel that might imply that there's some written agreement or oral agreement where they got together and made the agreement, whereas a concert of action they don't necessarily have to get together. They just all sort of act together. Uh, That's my antitrust background coming out. Jim, could I ask another question? Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. Go ahead. Mr. Fine, I uh, was wondering, has there ever been formed a watch group that is effective in allowing the public at large to have any idea whatsoever what kind of a judge, what kind of a man they're voting for? Interestingly enough, no. Uh, The closest that has happened is in June of this year, I formed the Campaign for Judicial Integrity. I did it very close to the June primary. I got some things out, but basically what I got out is what was happening with SBX 211 and the payments to the judges. And I got that out on the campaign's website. I got some press on it from the L.A. Daily News and also the L.A. Breeze. I'm not sure where else it got carried and how many websites and things carried it, but that's about the only thing that I know of that has actually brought anything to the public about what's happening with the particular judges. I find it just fascinating that we're supposed to depend on this judicial system and we really have no means to judge them whatsoever who we're getting in there that has this tremendous power over us and you can't hardly get rid of it unless they commit a major crime and it's front page news. To take that a little bit further, even then you can't get rid of them. First of all, there are approximately 31,500 state court judges in the United States. And according to the, I believe it's the State Court Judges Association, there has never been a state court judge impeached, even though the constitutions of all the states allow impeachment of a state court judge. Some of the constitutions allow the legislature to get rid of a state court judge by legislative action without impeachment. That has also never occurred. The only way that you can actually get rid of a state court judge is that in 39 states, judges are elected. Some of them are in retention elections where the judge runs and you can vote yes or no, and in other states you have actual elections. Now, where you have actual elections, that means that you can have somebody running against the judge. But I'm going to take you a step further in this in California where judges are elected. It is very, very interesting. If a judge is running for re-election under the California Constitution, unless somebody is running against that judge, that judge's name will never appear on the ballot. The way that it works out practically is as follows. Superior Court judges run for re-election every six years. A certain number of days before that re-election, there is a time period for someone to come in and file papers. The judge has to file papers, and any person that's going to challenge the judge has to file papers. 
if no one files papers to challenge the judge, the judge's name does not go on the ballot. The only other way that the judge's name can go on the ballot is if someone qualifies under a write-in campaign. And in the write-in campaign, that has to be a certain number of days before the election. And the person who does that has to go and get a certain number of signatures and everything, file that, and then his name can be written in, either at the primary election or at the general election. And the write-in campaign for the general election is going to be 83 days before the general election, at which point the judge's name would be on the ballot. Now, let's assume that no one files nomination papers. The judge's name does not appear on the primary election. The judge's name does not appear in the general election, and the county recorder will declare the judge elected. Let's take this last election that occurred. You had over 150-some-odd judges that were up for re-election in California. There were only approximately 21 judges that were challenged. So you only saw the names of approximately 21 judges in the ballots. The other 125 or so, whatever it may be, did not even appear. So we, the public, number one, did not know that these judges were up for re-election, and number two, never saw their names. And at the end of the general election in November, these judges will be declared to be re-elected public knows absolutely nothing about it. And I'm not sure where it was even posted that they would be up for re-election. So you have a branch of government that is basically accountable to no one, and you don't even find out that they're up for re-election. In contrast, appellate court judges and California Supreme Court justices run for re-election every 12 years, but that election is only a retention election, at which point only their name appears on the ballot, and it takes greater than 50% of the people voting to vote them out. And if they're voted out, then the governor will appoint a new person to fill that spot, and then that person will be up for a retention election. The public has absolutely nothing whatsoever to say about who is going to be a Supreme Court justice or an appellate court justice. Richard, do you think it's a good time to get into SBX 211? I can talk about it if you want, sure. SBX 211 is a bill that was drafted by the California Judicial Council and the California Judges Association in reaction to the Sturgeon decision. And the bill actually states that. It says that this bill is drafted because of the Sturgeon decision. And the bill really has two parts to it. One part says counties can continue to pay the payments to the judges that were being made as of July 1st, 2008. In order to stop making these payments, a county has to give 180 days notice to the Superior Court and to the Judicial Council. It also says, and this is the most dangerous part of it, it gives retroactive immunity from criminal prosecution, civil liability, and disciplinary action to all judges who receive the county payments and to all government entities and government employees who gave the payments to the judges. So that's what SBX 211 is. At present, the Attorney General is looking at SBX 211 to determine whether it is constitutional. How can it be constitutional, Richard? How can it be constitutional? Basically, it gives the judges no accountability at all, answerable to nobody, able to accept bribes, able to be involved in a kind of crime. What is there to settle? You're absolutely correct. I mean, it is unconstitutional on a lot of grounds. Now, SBX 211 came up before the courts, and the court held that SBX 211 was allowable as part of the budgetary process, but the court decision did not address that part of SBX 211 dealing with the immunity, and it also didn't address the fact that SBX 211 covered more than one subject. It did not address what we call the single subject rule, where a bill can only cover one subject, and SBX 211 covers more than one subject. There are a number of other constitutional infirmities that are involved, but most important, the court decision didn't cover these various things, particularly the retroactive immunity dealing with the bribery and things on this order. How did you find out about SBX 211, and how come that isn't public information? In other words, how come most of the public has no clue about it? How would we find out about it? 
Well, I knew about SBX 211 because SBX 211 was enacted on February 20th, 2009, and it became effective on March 21st, 2009. So it was enacted during the time of my contempt proceeding, and I used it. I used it against Yaffe because <laughs> I said, Yaffe, you know, you're a criminal. Because under SBX 211, by giving retroactive immunity from criminal prosecution, made the payments criminal. There was absolutely no question that the payments from the counties were criminal because of the fact SBX 211 was getting retroactive immunity from criminal prosecution. So there's no way that the judges could argue that these payments were just violations of the Constitution. And even though they were criminal under the federal law, you know, they couldn't get around the fact that they weren't criminal under the state law under SBX 211. So that's how I found out about it. But the media never made any noise about it whatsoever. Uh, the L.A. Daily News covered it, and uh, I believe the Sacramento Bee may have covered it, but the L.A. Times didn't cover it at all, and a lot of the other media didn't cover it. I don't know the reasons why they didn't, and one can only speculate. Maybe they didn't want to ruin their relationships with the judges. How about just everybody's afraid, including the lawyers? Well, there's no question that the lawyers are afraid. Well, you saw from what I quoted in Yaffe's ruling, setting me free, that he wanted the lawyers to be afraid. And that goes even to the point that when I was incarcerated and we were looking for lawyers to help out, there was not one lawyer that stepped up to help us out. And we went to Judicial Watch, we went to the ACLU, we went to lots of organizations and there was no one that is supposed to be defending civil rights and First Amendment rights and all the rest of this. Every one of them said no. They were all afraid to touch this. How did you not lose heart? Number one, you know, I knew I was right. Number two, I fought a lot of battles in my time. I fought a lot of battles against politicians. And I knew that when you fight a politician, the politician will fight you very hard, but the politician is always interested in their next election. So when push comes to shove, they will give in. In fact, with the cases that I had against the state legislature with respect to their taking money illegally, there's an anecdote. But at one point in time, the finance department of the state told the state legislature, if you keep doing this, we're going to contact Richard, and Richard's going to sue you, and we're going to get the money back. So you might as well just give up, because this is the way it's going to keep coming. Because I had filed so many cases against the legislature, and when we got to the end of it, they would always end up settling. And we always got the money back. Now, the judges are a different breed because of the fact that, number one, they're arrogant. Number two, there's no way you're really getting them. You aren't getting them on the elections because you don't know when they're getting elected. So if you go after them on the elections, the only way that we can get them out of office in California and the other 39 states is if there's someone that's going to run against them. Then that person has to be financed well enough to be able to beat them out. Basically, they're very, very well insulated, and they're responsible to no one. And even though you have laws in place that require disclosure and everything else, like, for instance, and I'm going to take a little bit of a sidetrack here, there are laws in place that say if a party in a case has made a contribution to a judge in his last campaign, the judge has to disclose that on the record in the case. There's literally no judge in California doing that. And if the contribution was greater than $1,500, the judge is disqualified. And if the contribution is less than $1,500, if a reasonable person believes that there could be bias, the judge is disqualified. None of this happens. Judges are breaking these laws every day. But there's no way that you're going to get rid of them other than an election. But unless someone knows that the judge is running for re-election, there's no way that you're going to even see the judge's name on the ballot. William, would you like to share the story that you shared with me about what you learned about judges from your dad's friend? Before I go into that, I'd like to ask a few more questions, if you don't mind. I know that because Kim did a good show on this, and I've studied thoroughly, that counties and cities sometimes rent out their park benches with advertising, and it goes into a fund that doesn't go to the general budget. Do you know if the uh, leasing out of property in uh, Marina Del Rey by the county, if that goes into the general budget, or does it go into these off-the-book assets? Actually, I, I do know it does go into the general fund. The basic problem, as I said before, is that under a normal commercial leasing situation, the county should be getting approximately $100 million a year for that property, and it's only getting about $35 million a year. And in the last number of years, the county has lost, or we the taxpayers have lost, approximately $1 billion in income from those properties. 
okay. And the other question was, you sound like the perfect person to save our country and perhaps form a, a powerful group and ask for funding from the citizens so they will have some knowledge and power in determining these judges. And it sounds like even in these judges that are not on the ballot, it would be rather easy to make them get on the ballot and discuss it by just having some guy run against them just to make it so he's transparent and you can start analyzing him. That's true. I think the hardest part will probably be to find somebody that is capable and willing to run against them. My personal philosophy as a lawyer and even as a consultant now is never do anything unless you intend to win. I mean, that's what's made me successful with the exception of getting in jail. Other than that, I never enter into anything unless I'm really intending to win. My feeling about the campaign for judicial integrity is that that campaign is going to grow and it is going to end up exposing a lot of things. As far as the funding is concerned, in today's recession, I'm not so sure how much money the public has to give. You know, I'm considering the idea of applying to various foundations to see what money can come out of the foundations. Now, the initial part of going in and setting up the campaign and everything else, I literally did, you know, out of my own pocket. I got a very good person to put up the website, and if you go to campaignforjudicialintegrity.org, you'll find it's a very, very good website. In fact, the person that did it won three webbies. We'll keep updating it and everything. But I think one of the things that can be done is that as people like yourself find out more information, whenever you see opportunities to write into editors of newspapers and things in this order, to get in there and start doing it. Because I think the only way that this is going to get out is through very, very active citizen involvement. I think if we rely on mainstream media for a reporter to pick up on something, that may or may not happen. But I think if we get out there and do it ourselves, take every opportunity to become vocal, then it will start happening. And that means using uh, the net, every available means. It's going to have to be grassroots. So that's sort of my comment. If, if we have people that want to become judges, fine and well, and I'm all in favor of that idea. So I, I'm with you on that if we can find the people. Well, I really respect what you're doing because it could change the world in so many ways people don't understand if we just had people stand up for what is right. And that kind of leads into the story that Kim wants me to uh, talk about. I really think that it's important. It just kind of puts a highlight on how a lot of this is rigged. And it's important for the public not so much to become negative and think that there can never, ever be justice anywhere, but to understand the level at which a lot of what we think is solid and true and honorable is rigged. Your anecdotal story would be very helpful if you're willing to share it. Yeah, I will. Well, I was a successful inventor straight out of USC. And before I know it, I'm talking to a Mr. Phillips, who's a multi-billionaire. He offers me a million dollars for a quarter of the company, a house in the laboratory. I made a lot of money and I had some venture capitalist guys. They totally took everything. But what Kim's talking about is I met a infamous lawyer out of Van Nuys. Most people that in that period of time would know who he is. This would be 1979 when I got a fight. He was on Blythe Street in Van Nuys. And I was shocked when I was told that you could walk in, put $2,000 down on his desk, get rid of any drunk driving conviction, anything. My boxing coach said, you got to meet this guy. I met him. He liked me because I was honest, you know, young, and liked inventing. He liked the products that I had, and so he kind of took me under his wing, and he said, well, I'll take your case. And I'll say, well, quite frankly, I saw your attorney. He seems to be not adequate, the one that works with you, and I, I need a really good attorney because, you know, I've got all the things lined up. And he says, oh, you don't understand. You won't go to trial if I take your case, which I'm doing. And I said, what do you mean it won't go to trial? Well, as I found out later, the guy owned so many judges. And I, that was confirmed because my mom and dad had this friend that came over, a judge, and he acted kind of pompous all the time. And I mentioned this name to this attorney. He says, oh, yeah, that guy worked in my office for a while. He owes me. I went back during a dinner. I, I mentioned the attorney's name. He turned white as a sheet. I mean, he was just so scared 
when he knew that I knew that he worked for this attorney because, again, this guy could pull any records, get rid of drunk convictions, he could control the case, and here's this big civil case worth $2.7 million. He said I'd automatically win. He could get the judge that I wanted. You could rearrange whatever he wanted. He had so many judges in his pocket. And right at that moment, I went, oh, my God. This whole judicial system is not even close to anything as a conservative I was led to believe when I was a student at USC. Not even close. And then it got worse. I found that the lawyers that were involved on my case were scared of the bad guys who were cowardly, and they did everything to help the opposite side. So there was no honor. Everything was based on greed, and it was just pathetic. I lost 100% faith in the judicial system, and it destroyed my life. I mean, I suffered so much that to this very day, better if I had died in 1982 than go through all the suffering I had to go through. Thank you for sharing that. I know that you didn't want to share that, but when you told me what happened to you, I thought it was worth people hearing it on the show. Richard, do you want to respond to that? Was the lawyer that you had ever able to go through and use something like a 473D motion and come in with the judges that he knew and get everything reversed? My own lawyers betrayed me. They started working for the other side. Everybody involved with me went with the money, went with the fear of the bullies, and I lost everything, absolutely everything. That's tragic. I was just thinking that the guy on Blythe Street, whether he was able to do anything, it sounds like he was so wired. that. Uh... Oh, he was wired, but I was so naive at the time. I was going, I want to win it the right way. And oh my God, uh, that was one of the dumbest things I did because I found out the other side wasn't playing fair. And I was taught in the Navy and my fraternity and everything, always fight fairly unless the other guy pulls a knife. Then all bets are off. And I did not know that the other side was going to fight dirty, and boy, did they. If I would have known what I know now, of course, I would have said, yeah, do your best shot. You know what I mean? And, of course, I would have saved everyone else the suffering. These men, these venture capitalists went on hurting other people as time went on, and I would save the community from that hardship. And so I was really a fool. I didn't understand. I don't know if it'll work for you or not. There is a whole thing called the 473D motion that if you can show fraud upon the court, you can go in and get everything voided out. But you have to demonstrate the fraud. Part of that is to be able to show if your own attorneys went through and sold you out. That's one of the concepts that exists under 473D. And if you can actually prove that your own attorney sold you out, you can get everything voided out also. Who do you think really wins stuff like that, though, Richard? I want to ask you about that. Who could prove anything like that? There's different ways that you can do it. One of the things is that if there are public records that have been fraudulently changed, for instance, in property or something, if someone went in and they falsely recorded a document or falsely recorded a deed and you have the actual deed to show what really took place, you can go into the county recorder's office, start an investigation, have the correct deed put in place, and uh, end up owning the property and actually never even have to end up going to court. That's one thing. If uh, what happened, I don't know what happened here, but if there's things that you're able to end up showing that the guy did something wrong and they lied to the court or they did things on this order, uh, and you can show where the actual lie is, and it's something that they hid from you and you couldn't have found out. If you could have found out and proven it in the lawsuit, that's called intrinsic fraud and it won't work. If it's something that they withheld and you couldn't have found out, that's extrinsic fraud and it works. If you've got a payment to the judge or something, if it's a bribe, then it works. If they did certain things like they concealed uh, fraudulent activity and maybe you can find out now that they did certain things way back then that there's no way that you could have found out about it, it'll work. I don't know when the law went in about campaign contributions, but I'm sure it came after 86, though, but you may want to check it out. The 473D motion, there's no time limit on when you can bring the motion. But you have to be able to show that the fraud occurred. If you can show that the fraud occurred, then there's no time limit on being able to bring the motion. 
So what you're looking for is the actual factual evidence that the fraud occurred. And that's the thing I am stressing in my new career where I'm dealing with corruption because that is where all the corruption is occurring. Corruption is a very, very big business. That's where I'm nailing the judges now on that level of corruption and going into the facts and things and finding where that fraud is and where it's happening and then just nailing them and then going in to disqualify judges by looking at the canons of judicial ethics and looking at the law and where they're supposed to be out. The thing is, Richard, that at the end of the day, because you've been disbarred illegally and you're working now as a consultant and a strategist in these areas, who are you working through? In other words, you still have to have very brave men and women attorneys, right, to go in front. Interestingly enough, I get hired by clients who have attorneys and sometimes by clients that are in pro per. See, the interesting thing about the underlying thing here is that it's all in the facts. The law is really pretty simple when you're dealing with fraud. There are just a few cases that are out there. I mean, there's United States versus Strockmartin. In the state, there's the state of Sanders. There's Valelli. The cases are maybe three or four cases that are sitting out there. The law doesn't really change too much, but it's all in the factual situations. You have to research out the facts. With all due respect to people in my former profession, most lawyers are lazy, and they don't want to deal with the research into the facts that determines the fraud, and that's where the problem exists. So you really have to research out those facts. Once you have the facts, You could go in and pull the cases right off the Internet on some of my briefs that are out there in the public domain. Don't you still have to have attorneys, once they have the facts, who exercise the bravery and the courage to come forward with these cases? Once you have the facts laid out, if the attorney doesn't do it, a lot of clients do it in pro per because there's so much at stake. And that part is not really too hard to do because, as I say, the part that becomes the legal part is literally lifting the case law. There's literally no legal reasoning involved with respect to the case law because the case law is so wide that it's anything that interferes with the judicial process is an extrinsic fraud. And that's literally what the cases say. You have to show what actions occurred that interfered with the judicial process or that stopped a person from getting a fair trial or a fair adversarial hearing. Then you just plug in the case. Joshua, do you have a question? Yes, I wanted to actually thank Mr. Fine for being such a patriot. I mean, I can't believe that he was able to stand up to all this corruption and basically his life and his work's taken from him, and he's still here fighting. I mean, I can only imagine how I'd be in that position, you know, and it's the standing of a true man, to be honest with you. Thank you, Joshua, but I'll tell you, every one of us has it in us. It's a real simple type of thing. You have it in you. Every person has it in us. I want to sort of exercise a positive note here. Despite all the things that happen, we fight on. As bleak as all the things that happen, we keep going. And I have a very basic thing that I have said. In the end, I will win. And I will win for two reasons. Number one, these judges will either retire or resign or die. So one part of the race is that my dad died in his sleep at 96. I've got good genes. So so essentially, I'm going to outlive most of these people. Another part of it deals with the fact of I told the story of the three rabbis. I've got somebody on my side. Indeed. And I have a very, very basic belief. I happen to be a very spiritual person. And with that spirituality, I have a very, very basic belief in good and in right. And no matter what happens, I believe that the good things are going to end up winning out. Irrespective of all of these people and irrespective of everything that they do. And I think the mere fact that I am still here shows that it will happen. The judges have basically given up fighting me. They've done everything they possibly can against me, and I'm still here. And I'll tell you the story. After the State Bar admitted in August 2011 that my disbarment was a fraud, I then moved in the California Supreme Court to have the void disbarment taken away. The State Bar did not oppose that motion, and the California Supreme Court refused to grant it. So the State Bar has given up. (laughs) They've now turned, and now it's really the judges. And the the thing with the judges is I think, in my own personal opinion, I think that they are so afraid of having me back in the state bar where, as a lawyer, I would come against them that they're just refusing to let me in. 
But at the same time, they can't do anything about the fact that out there as a consultant, I can consult on the facts, and these cases are going to just keep coming at them. They are not going to go away. One thing that the state bar said when the state bar proceedings were going on, saying, well, if we disbar him, at least he won't be part of us, and therefore we may lose control over what he's doing, but he won't be part of us. Well, that came true, and I became their worst enemy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything else you would like to share, Richard? I think what I would like to share is this, that optimism is the place to go. And what we have is we have a situation in which we have one part of our government, which is the judicial branch, which in the beginning, you know, when the Constitution was written, our founding fathers thought the executive and the legislative would balance off the judicial. And they thought that that would happen based upon the fact that if the judicial branch went off the track, the legislative branch would pass laws that would correct judicial errors. And over the course of time, that in fact has happened. When the judicial branch has gone off the track, the legislative branch has passed a law to correct judicial errors. What has taken place is that the judicial branch has now set itself up as to be a branch that no one can possibly question. And it's set itself up with various immunities and various levels of protections like the voting systems and everything that we've seen. However, there are always ways to break these things down. One of the ways to break these things down is public opinion and exposure. And that's a job for all of us. And that's one of the jobs that I urge everyone to become involved, so that when you see things, expose it. That's number one. Number two, take advantage of those laws, interestingly enough, that have been passed that require judges to disclose and require judges to disqualify themselves if they don't disclose. Make yourselves aware of these particular things and take advantage of them. Finally, become very, very active, not only through use of the mainstream press, through use of Kim's show, through use of the Internet. And with all of these things, what will take place is we'll have a groundswell. Interestingly enough, and I'm going to use the comparison of what's happening in the world, what has happened in Egypt, what is happening in Syria today, what happened in Tunisia, people across the world are striving to get a system that we have. So it is literally incumbent upon us to take advantage of everything that we have to improve our system. So we don't have to be discouraged. We just go forward and we fight and we'll maintain our system and we'll make it better. I'm going to leave you with one thing. In California, there are only 1,900 Superior Court judges and just a few hundred more, if that, appellate court and Supreme Court justices. So basically, you're dealing with less than 2,500 people that are imposing this tyranny upon 38 million Californians. That is a minuscule number in the totality of our universe. So we don't have to be afraid of them. They can't really impose that much power on us. And when you look at the numbers, we overwhelm them. And it's all we have to do is just exercise our democratic rights and our democratic power. And we win, they lose. And that's where it's at. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Richard Fine. He gave 18 months of his life in prison and was disbarred for standing up to judicial corruption in the state of California. You can reach him by going to richardfinelaw.com. I really want to thank you for being here today, for everything that you've been doing and standing for for actually standing in such a state of optimism when you were tortured and made an example of in the worst way. And it's really more a testimony about you. And I just want to thank you so much. Kim, thank you for the opportunity to appear on the show. It's been a pleasure to appear with you and a pleasure to speak with everyone. And I look forward to doing it again. Thank you again.